So James says, at the, the end of last week, he says, on verse 6, what he starts with, But he, gave, he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the, the, the verses we're going to go through today are, are verses 5 through 10. And it's funny because verse 10 ends, Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. So, that kind of bookmarks what we're going to talk about today. It bookends. It's like the two bookends on your shelf and you've got the books in between. This is what we're going to talk about today. You know... Politicians don't, do, do, don't not seem to excel at humility, do they? Or repentance. They boast about themselves and their accomplishments in order to get elected. That's what politicians do. They all do that, by the way. Not one party or another party. They all do that. And they deny or cover up their misdeeds as much as possible. You all remember Mr. President Bill Clinton. And he was publicly accused of sexual misconduct. With one of his young interns. And in a news conference, he faced his accusers and empathetically declared, I did not have sex with that woman. But, a few weeks later, irrefutable physical evidence proved that he did have sexual relations with that woman. And after he was caught, the president, full of emotion, expressed great sorrow and great shame for his misdeeds. See, we've seen this kind of repentance many times with people in the spotlight. You can take stars that are in the spotlight or, or any other politicians. They get caught with their pants down. And then suddenly they deny until there's evidence. And then they, then they say they're sorry. Or they say something and they say, oh, no, I didn't say that. Until it's proven that they didn't just say it then. They said it several other times too. You see... They don't, politicians tend to express sorrow only when absolutely necessary. See, since they necessarily calculate the efforts of their public acts and, it, and utterances, they do make easy targets for us. But we as ordinary citizens, are we any better at repentance? You see, do we excel at repentance, given that all people, not just politicians, want to hide their shameful deeds? Does the quality of our repentance matter? Does it matter if we wait to tell the truth? Does it matter if we wait to repent? Well, according to James, it does. It does. See, we find repentance in James throughout the whole book. Repentance is the central theme in our passage today. But for us to follow James's message, we must locate it within his pattern of thought 
for the last couple of weeks, in, in, from uh, chapter 3.13 through chapter 4.4, 4, in topic of repentance, his topic of repentance develops. James' teaching on, he uses the two ways of life to show us. James develops this topic of repentance on the way he teaches on this, the two ways. See, wisdom from heaven will lead to a beautiful life marked by peace and righteousness. Wisdom from the earth, though, is marked with, by envy, selfish ambition, and it leads to a life marked with, by coveting. We want stuff that other people have. We want other people's lives because they look better than ours because the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence until you get there and realize yours was greener. We end up in fights, quarrels, and we end up in infidelity towards God. We turn to the world instead of to God. See, James concludes his analysis of selfish ambition when he asks in verse 5 of chapter 4, Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? See, in last week's lesson, I said this verse deserved some scrutiny, but now we need to take another look. See, firstly, when James writes Scripture says, we know that he wasn't quoting the Bible, but he was summarizing the whole entire biblical theology of fallen humanity. He was describing what we are, fallen creatures. See, secondly, therefore, James teaches that envy is a common human trait. Everybody in here can say, I've envied something. This, this in, indictment first applies to unbelievers, though. But James believes his entire audience needs to hear this, or else it would have been written in his letter. If he didn't think Christians needed to hear this, he wouldn't have wrote it, because he was mainly writing to who? Jewish Christians. You see... Anyone can fall prey to envy. Even though it contradicts God's original design for us, all of us can fall in that trap. When God created the human race, you see, he gave us strong spirits, an active intellect, and a passion for significance. He gave us all them qualities. We hunger to do great things and will fight through obstacles to achieve great goals. God gave us all of them initiatives. Sin is what's changed it. Our rebellion, our passion and, and drives become unruly because of sin. See, envy and selfish pursuits misdirect our energies. See, God made our spirits strong, but sin makes them wayward. Sin makes them want to do what they want to do for their benefit. For, for, so 
me. Because we pursue selfish uh, ambitions and cover our neighbor's goods. That's what we thrive for as human race. The human race. But God did not give us our energy and aspirations to see us pour them into selfish desires. See, he did not give us our willingness to fight for a cause so we would spend it defeating others. His salvation restores our sense of direction. So instead of defeating others, we're trying to save others. We're trying to lift others up. See, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, unbelievers are especially prone to envy since they cannot shed their inward love of self. If I don't ever judge a non-Christian... Somebody who doesn't know Christ, we have no right to judge them. We have no right to tell them how they should or shouldn't live their life. If they don't believe in God, they have every right to live their life however they want. We don't have a right. Guess what? They will face judgment, but it's not your judgment, it's God's judgment. We are not told to judge others. We're told to love others. And by the way, when you're judging others, you're not loving them. You can't do both at once. You can't love somebody and judge them. It's impossible. Only one being can do that, and that is God. He can love you and judge you at the same time. But even believers are prone to intense envy. Even though we are are free from it in principle, we trust God to give us this exalted status of sons and daughters, so we need to not strive for recognition. I read something the other day, and and, and I I was telling Andrew and and... it said, give credit even if, to somebody else, even if it should be to you. But take the blame even if you're not to blame. That's wisdom right there. That's wisdom. We know God provides whatever we need and therefore envy is misplaced. Still, God's people fall into envy and selfishness too. Surely, Scripture does not speak in vain when it says the human race is prone to pride and envy. Consider the testimony of biblical history, for instance. Adam and Eve envied God's knowledge of good and evil. What did that get them? Genesis 3. Cain envied the approval of God the, God, the, the approval God gave to Abel. Genesis 4. Jacob and Esau struggled to gain the blessing of their father. Genesis 27. Joseph told his brothers that they would one day bow down to him. So what did they do? They sold him into slavery, thinking it would therefore 
never come to pass. Genesis 37. Saul envied the praise David gained after he defeated Goliath because the women of Israel sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. 1 Samuel 18. And Absalom envied the throne of his father David and started a civil war to obtain it. 2 Samuel 15. The disciples coveted place of honor. This doesn't happen, you see. This is not just the Old Testament thing. The disciples coveted places of honor in Jesus' kingdom. It was not enough to be with Jesus. James and John and others longed to sit at his right and his left. Matthew 20. See, biblical history is largely a record of our selfish striving. Anytime the Bible talks about humankind, it's usually not in a good way. The whole Bible is to tell you that you stink at it, you need Jesus. That's the whole Bible wrapped up in one sentence. You stink at it, let Jesus do it. See, if envy marks the people of God, how much more is ordinary history a record of kings covered in the lands of other kings, of captains of industry seeking greater wealth, or politicians and entertainers craving more recognition? See, inventors like the Wright brothers drained their energy fighting over credit for their inventions. How much more would they have accomplished in life if they hadn't been worried about getting the credit for what they had done. See, even scientists fight for recognition that they discover an animal, a star, or even a disease. You see, Scripture rightly says, human history is a tale of envy and strife. See, every one of us is motivated by envy and ambition. And everyone should confess that to God. See, James 4, 6 says, if we humbly confess this to our loving God, he will give us more grace. More grace. And I don't know about you, but I need a lot of that. Our selfish passions lead us to fail the tests of true faith. See, our selfishness drives us to care for our needs and our wants before we look to the widows and the orphans. It's all about me. You can have my leftovers. See, we say foolish things to make good impressions. Because we seek wealth or recognition, we find a way to fit in with society instead of avoiding its pollutions. See, our failures show that sin resides within us all. Therefore, we must humble ourselves before God. We should confess our sins and we should plead for mercy. So what's the nature of humility? When God sees how we misuse the energy he grants us, he knows his grace is our only hope. His grace has a direction. See, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. 
But even humility is a gift from God. No one rejects his pride unless the God that the God enables them to do that. See, remember the Lord opens our eyes so we can see the futility of living for ourselves. Every one of us has a story, at least one story, at when God opened your eyes and you said, Man, I am really sucking at this. I need something different. And that something different happened to be that day was Jesus. And you realized that Jesus was the person that you, the, the, that you needed because you could not do it on your own. But it's so easy. It's so easy to take your eyes after you followed Christ for so long. There was a book I read when I was a first a Christian, and it was called The Slumber of Christianity. And it was written, uh, now I can't figure it out, but he mainly writes fiction. And he wrote this book about how you'd go in a church, and everybody in the church, they'd been following Christ 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and they just look miserable. They look tired, worn out. And drained. They don't look happy. And he couldn't understand that. So he wrote a book. Called it The Slumber of Christianity. Because we looked like a bunch of people that were sleeping. And, and we shouldn't be like that. We worship a God that is amazing. We should find joy in that every single minute of every single day. Grace teaches us to trust God and to rest in Jesus rather than in ourselves. See, so James commands us to, be hum- to humble ourselves before God. See, James 4, 6 through 10 begins and ends with a call to humility. See, it actually starts with a warning that leads to a promise. See, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And it ends with a command that leads to a promise. Humble yourselves. That's not telling you you should. It's a command. If you're a Christian, humble yourself before the Lord. And what will he do? He will exalt you. What a promise. If we go to God and humble ourselves, he will exalt you. See, this need for humility and the call to humility from, forms the bookends for this text today. God gives grace to the humble and we must humble ourselves before the Lord. See, the rest of the passage describes the life of humility. So there's a warning God opposes the proud. There's a promise, but gives grace to the humble. But there's a conclusion. Submit yourselves then to God. And then the book end, at the other end, the command is humble yourself before the Lord. And the promise is he will exalt you. It's a promise that God will do because here's the thing about God, he does not lie. See, 
the verses in between, though, develop the, the, develop the demand for humility by exploring these two poles of divine promise and human responsibility. You see, in James 4, 7, when it's called to submit to God, it explains verse 4, 6. You see, since God opposes the proud, we should then submit to him as an act of humility. See, the submission can then expect to receive the grace that we so much need. See, notice as James writes, the humility has nothing to do with a shy or retiring personality. Being humble doesn't mean you have to be shy or timid. See, powerful and exuberant people can be humble. See, firstly, James says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. God's diagnosis says we are prone to envy and selfishness. It is indeed wrong to live for ourselves. Where then should we direct our life energy? Towards the poor and needy, towards family and the neighborhood. This is what James has been talking about, this whole book, towards the church. Yes, but what, does, what do we have to dedicate ourselves before we dedicate ourselves to humanity, James says, we need to submit ourselves to God. Because you're not going to help the world in the state you're in. Until you can fully submit yourself to God, you cannot help. Because until you're fully submitted to God, you cannot help. Because you're living for self still. So you're doing everything that you do to get some sort of self-worth from it. See, we need to fully surrender to God. See, submit sounds very passive in English. But actually the Greek concept is more active. The Greek word, hupotasso, is actually a compound term. The two elements mean arrange and under. So to submit in Scripture is not to sit back and wait for God to issue orders. Submission certainly includes obedience to commands, but we also submit when we arrange our lives under God's general direction. Most of us have been Christians a long time in this room, okay? Okay. Long enough that we should have some direction how God would want us to lead our lives. Most of us hopefully have read some of the Bible and we understand how God wants us to live our lives. You see, just like a worker submits by obeying his supervisor's directions. Most people have had a supervisor or somebody they've worked under. But he also submits when he is... He... he, is from his leader's principles. He, when he takes on new tasks according to them principles. See, I don't have to go to my boss all the time if I know how my boss wants the job to be done and I learn how he wants the job to be done. I can just do it and he's going to be pleased with me because I'm using his way of doing it. That's what submission is. I might have a way that I think it should be done, but if, if you work for somebody... Them writing your paycheck, you should do it their way. That's what submission is. 
See, we wouldn't need to wait for orders because we would understand the leader's goals, vision, ethic, well enough to apply them to new situations. An athlete submits to his or her coach by coming into season well-conditioned. You know, most athletes, professional athletes, don't get told how to work out throughout their... They, they, do, they hire themselves, coaches, however they want to work out to get in shape for the season. Even high school kids don't get told how to work out. They get told they should work out. But that's part of submitting to the coach. Is doing what you know you need to do to perform the task that's needed. See, obedience is one element of submission. To submit is for us to recognize the lordship and authority of another. We died to self and we live for Christ. If you're dead in self and you're living for Christ, you shouldn't matter anymore. Because you're living for Christ. Christ is going to take care of you. Why am I worried about it? When someone submits, he typically does so under a, a, to an authority, to God, to a king, to a governor, to a leader, officer, parent, or expert. See, who we also should submit to laws and rules. Unless you want to end up in jail. See, submission means one person who is Lower in rank, age, position, or power will yield to another person with greater rank, age, position, expertise, or power. See, so submission requires subordinates to bend their will to the will of their superior, even if the superior issues a directive that seems unpleasant or unwise and insists upon it. See, this does not mean we must do whatever a superior says. If an authority commands something that that is contrary to the will of God, we must disobey man in order to obey God. See, as the apostle said, when certain Jewish leaders forbid that they preach Christ, we must obey God rather than man, Acts 5.29 says. A good worker will not lie because the boss commands it. Nor will a good wife follow her husband's wicked orders. A good soldier will not execute innocent civilians, even if his commander says so. A good person that's following God will not do that. A person that's God-centered will not do that. Because if to lie, if my boss tells me to lie, that goes against what my God tells me, and that's my ultimate authority. Our problem is sometimes we surrender, but we don't fully surrender to God. See, if however we merely doubt the wisdom of a superior, we may make suggestions and we may raise questions, but we must finally submit. It's just like if they tell you how to do a job and you say, hey, I've got a job. I know how to do that job better. If, if, if you tell them and they say, no, I want it done like this, you do it like that. They're paying you. It might take you twice as long doing it that way, 
but they're paying you. See, the test of loyalty, loyalty and submission to a superior comes only when his or her will crosses ours. See, if God says, do this, and your will says, no, I want to do this, that's when submission is hard. That's when we struggle because our sinful nature wants to go one way. But we really need to fully submit ourselves to God. So it is with God we obey whenever we do His will. We submit when we obey a command that seems hard or strange. You see, such submission signifies that we have humbled ourselves before the Lord. And the next half of that says, the verse says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This begins to explain how we submit to God. See, James here is linking submission to God with resistance of the devil. See, that is to submit to God's authority is to resist to the devil's authority. And to submit to God is to order our lives under his authority. So his way of living that we find out how to live in this book. To oppose Satan is this settling means to simply means to resist temptations, especially to fight each other or cover. Curiously though, Paul says this. One way to resist Satan is to flee from him. But is to flee from his, uh, that is to flee from his persuading to sin. He says this in Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And 1 Corinthians 10.14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And 1 Timothy 6.11 says, But you, man of God, flee from all this, the love of money, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And finally, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee the, the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. So we resist the devil by fleeing from our temptations. And when we flee from sin, the devil flees from us. And let's think of how Jesus' temp- temptations turned out. After Jesus faced down three temptations, Satan left him for a while. Even though he would try again at a more opportune time. See, we, when we resist Satan, he must seek another time. When we do not resist, we have given him the foothold in our life. And anybody that is addicted to anything, knows that once you put, let that foothold in, it just grows and grows and grows. It doesn't go away. 
And since sin has pathways, failure to resist on one occasion makes it harder to resist the next temptation and harder to submit to the God who commands us to flee immorality. See, this suggests what the promise and he will flee from you might mean. You see, certainly Satan does not always flee. I will not make that promise to you. Remember his names are the devil or deceiver and Satan or advisor. See, he will continue to wage war against you. Shall I tell you why? Because you're gods. You belong to him. So he will continue to wage war against God's people. But each time you come to a battle, you need to flee from them temptations. He will continue to wage war with us. And temptations fade slowly. We need to come near to God and cleanse your hands. See, when we hear come near to God, it might, we, it might make us think of, of public worship, Worship of any time, driving in the car, coming there, drawing there, listening to Christian music, wherever, or praying to God, uh, quiet times. See, come, come, come near though is sometimes the language of worship, but James has not been discussing worship here. So therefore, come near could mean returning to God in a covenant renewal after straying. That is what God speaks of, this returning to him after straying in the Old Testament in Malachi, saying, return to me and I will return to you. And in Hosea 12, 6, where the prophet links returning to God with coming near to God. It is certainly true that we may come near to God after sinning, perhaps after succumbing to temptation. But come near and draw near means more than just repent. We come near to God to worship Him, to serve Him, to meet Him, to seek help, to to gain assurance as well as to repent. See, it is better therefore to to it is better therefore to conclude that James is offering a far reaching promise, a promise that no other gods make. See, when we draw near to God, he also draws near to us. No other God does that. All other gods say, do for me, 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 do for me. God says, done for you. See, as Moses asked, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And, after, and, and if a sinner comes near to the holy God, they will naturally want to repent of their sins. If you come so close to God, you will want to confess your sins. See, James says, cleanse your hands. You know, the hands represent actions or deeds in the Bible. The actions of deeds that you've done. Genesis 3.22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, 
lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, Genesis 4.11 says, And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Exodus 3.20 says, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in them. After that, he will let you go. See, and Deuteronomy 2.7 says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness, those 40 years. The Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. And Psalms 89.22 says, So that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also strengthen him. See, then next James will say, Purify our hearts. The heart represents our motives and our intentions. See, James expresses severe disapproval of double-minded. The double-minded lack integrity. When you're trying to serve God and the world, you lack integrity. They pursue two things at once. Service of God and service of self. See, James has already warned about double-minded, saying that double-minded men ask and we will get nothing. He is unstable, but godly wisdom is pure, and it, is, it has clarity and purpose. So true believers are bent on one thing, to seek and find God. See, the psalmist says in Psalms 24, 3-6, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in this holy place? He who has cleaned has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. See, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. See, the desire for a pure heart lead logically to sorrow for the sin in our lives. When sin is manifest, the righteous will grieve. Verse 9 says, Do do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may... That's the wrong... I'm I'm reading the wrong verse, sorry. It is 9, but I was reading 5 now. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. And your joy to gloom. See, the Old Testament prophets said to us, said to us through the text, that those who faced God's judgment would grieve and mourn and wail. See, more important, the prophets also invited the people to grieve, mourn, and wail before the judgment. As they return to God. And like Jesus, James says, we can laugh now at sin and mourn later over judgment. Or we can mourn now over sin and laugh later at God's grace. See, all too often the world laughs about the wrong things. 
There is a fleeting joy for those who indulge in sin and fleeting sorrow for those who break with it. But it is far better to mourn now for a season and rejoice forever. You see, not all mourning has spiritual value, of course. Criminals express sorrow after they get caught of the crime. A politician is, is very contrary on after he has been caught misbehaving. Investors are remorseful after being found guilty of inside trading. See, thinking of Judas, perhaps, Paul said this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. We should be wailing. We should be crying and mourning for the sin in our lives. To get rid of it. To turn us to God so we can repent to God and give it to God. See, a truly penitent person grieves and mourns their sin, whether they get caught or not. They don't wait to get caught to turn to God. They know they've sinned and they turn to God. That is the grief that leads to healing. That, he, that leads to healing. That is the morning Jesus blessed. That is the morning that Jesus blessed when he said, blessed are those who mourn. And finally, we need to lay yourself before the Lord. See, the prophets often declared that the Lord, hum- the Lord humbles the proud. Yet here, James does not say the Lord will humble you. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord. So we do not wait for God or for circumstances to humble us. It is our duty to humble ourselves. If we profess to be Christians, we should be humbling ourselves. We should be going to God and confessing and pouring out our pride and our envy and giving it to him so he can fill us anew. See, James does not specify how we do this, but he does drop a hint in this phrase, before the Lord. See, if we remember that all we do is before the Lord, if we remember that simple phrase, before the Lord, if his holiness is our standard, it is easy to humble ourselves. But remember, by the way, everything you do is before the Lord because He is omnipresent. So He is everywhere you are. So when you're sinning, He is there right by you. When you do them things that you wish you, that nobody sees because there is nobody around, you're doing them with Jesus. Jesus is involved in all of it. He is right there by your side. See, but if we compare ourselves to others, it is easier to avoid humility. See, if a parent scolds or rebukes a child for a messy room, what does that child do? 
The child runs to this excuse. You think my room is bad. You should see so-and-so's. And they think of the most messiest kid that they know. And then adults, it's not just kids. Adults do the same thing when their flaws appear. We think, I have a problem, but I'm not nearly as bad as so-and-so. We've all been there. Makes us feel better. Because we're for self. Because we're not humble. See, when we compare ourselves to others, we can easily find someone who is worse than you. You can easily find somebody worse than you. It's easy. But if we compare ourselves to the Lord, who is the absolute standard, the excuse disappears and we are more likely to humble ourselves. See, when he stood before the Lord, even the prophet Isaiah, a godly man, by the way, who served as God's mouth, He declared this, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, in a sense, he is still compared himself to his countryman, but not in a way that excused his sin. He put himself... With them. When God is the standard, humility comes easy. So if we humble ourselves, if we admit that we sin, and that we are sinful, and that we cannot reform ourselves, then, then and only then, James promises this, the the God our Lord will lift you But we have to admit that we're wrong. That's hard for us. But do you know the funny thing about it is? God knows everything you do anyway. You're not hiding anything from him. See, James does not mention the atonement of Christ ever. The cross of Christ or the resurrection of Christ. But he states the gospel his own way, a way deeply influenced by the teachings of Jesus. See, James says there is an antithesis, a choice between two ways of life, a way of selfish ambition and a way of purity and peace. See, we can be a friend of God or we can be a friend of the world, but we can't be both. We can be proud Or we can humble and repent. See, Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to be on the end of that promise, not the beginning. See, when we grieve our sins and turn to him in faith, he will extend his redeeming grace. When we come to God in repentance and humility... He will forgive us and he will lift us up. God knows that is about our progress, not our perfection. 
We should be going to God on a daily basis. Because I don't know about you, but I'm sure I sinned this morning, and I'm going to sin some more before I go to bed tonight. And I'm not perfect, and neither are you. But I know where to go. And I want to go there on a daily basis. Sometimes on a minute-to-minute basis. Because I do stupid stuff. Because I'm still a sinful human being. But we need to learn to go to God and ask for the forgiveness that's offered to us. So we can be opened up. See, the more we do this, the less we'll struggle Because what I found is when you confess something to God, it doesn't happen overnight, but it gets less and less. And them sins that that are there, the more you confess them, the more you speak it out loud, the more you give it to God, it goes away. And yes, there'll be other things that will show up because you're a sinful human being and you've got layers of layers of sin. That God has to peel back one by one. So the only way we can do that is by going to him. And confessing our sins. And humbling ourselves before him. For next week, read James 4, 11 through 17. That'll, that'll finish up uh, chapter 4. And get ready for next week's sermon, Pride and Humility. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that you are a God who has forgiven us. That a God that if we humbly come to you and humbly confess our sin. We don't blame anybody. We take the blame for our wrong. And we just give it to you. I pray that you come closer to us and heal us. And help us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.